Welcome to Fast Asleep. Whether you're here to embark on a beautiful night's sleep or just to listen to an exceptional story, it's nice to have you with us. Those of us familiar with the short story collections of Alfred Hitchcock may already be familiar with our next tale. It is meant to frighten and instruct us, according to Mr. Hitchcock. Instruct? Okay, but frighten. Hmm. Let's go with amuse. Now, Walter Brooks is the actual author of our story, and he was known for his witty works, including the TV series, Mr. Ed. Really? So, tuck in and enjoy in two episodes Miss Emmeline takes off. When the old Valiant house on the lake was sold for taxes, Miss Emmeline Valiant went to live at Mrs. Purdy's. She took very little with her. She took Thomas, her cat, and her family portraits. The rest of the things were sold to Mr. Maul, who had bought the house. Now, Mr. Maul offered her a lump sum for everything. It was not a generous offer, although it was made with many protestations of sympathy and respect, and with a sort of codicil in which Mr. Maul said that he was very sorry he was not a rich man, so that he could offer her more. Miss Emmeline replied, that she did not see that his financial standing had any relation to the value of the goods, and that in any case, neither emotional nor financial hypocrisy was necessary, since all she wanted was to get it over with. She, if he would give her a check, the matter would be closed. And so he wrote the check. Afterward, he did a lot of grumbling about ingratitude and stiff-necked pride, but nobody paid much attention, for everybody in the village knew that Miss Emmeline had several times in the past offered him the house at a fair price, and each time he had refused, preferring to buy it cheap at a forced sale. And indeed, it was suspected that it was his influence that had forced the sale. Of course, nobody dared say this to Mr. Maul. Although he had retired from active business, he was rich and influential. And he had given the park, he had given the village a park. And it was known that he intended to do a lot of entertaining which is good for local trade, and also for people who like to go to parties. Also, the old Valiant House itself was so enveloped in tradition that it was felt whoever occupied it was, by that fact alone, entitled to respect. So, when this story begins, it is evening, and Mr. Maul is sitting in the Valiant House, gloating. And Miss Emmeline is sitting 
in her room at Mrs. Purdy's, stroking Thomas, her cat, and wondering what she will live on when Mr. Mall's check is used up. The Valiants were one of those families of early settlers who colonized the country by moving slowly westward from the eastern seaboard. The movement was not even. The colonists progressed like grasshoppers in a series of hops. Sometimes they would hop several times in a generation, and sometimes there would be a century between hops. The Valiants had been hundred-year hoppers. They came over in 16-something to Massachusetts, and then in 17-something they had hopped to Connecticut. And in 1810 they had hopped into New York State. One grand-uncle had hopped on into Ohio and disappeared. But the rest of the family had stayed put and had lived and died in the old house on the lake. All but Miss Emmeline, who now sat pondering past glories and future doubts. All at once, Miss Emmeline jumped up and said, Oh! For she had suddenly remembered that in the confusion and unhappiness of leaving the home where she had lived all her life, she had forgotten to bring with her something more precious to her than the portraits, or even Thomas, her cat. She had forgotten the queer little flat trunk, which was said to have belonged to an ancestress who had figured in one of the New England witch trials. Now, in the scale of New England genealogical values, a witch hmm, is equivalent to a patent of nobility. A judge is better than a minister, and a governor is better than a judge, but an ancestress who was actually hanged for witchcraft is a rare and glittering treasure. So, Miss Emmeline took a clean handkerchief and put on her hat and went to see Mr. Mall. Her visit delighted Mr. Mall, for he felt that it would give him an opportunity to try out the formal old world courtesy, which he conceived to be appropriate in his new setting. But Miss Emmeline cut through his polished ineptitudes to come straight to the point. She had forgotten the trunk. Would he permit her to send for it? Now, I suppose Mr. Mall didn't particularly want the trunk, but the discovery that Miss Emmeline's call was not a social one, after all, made him resentful. And he said, no. The trunk, he said, was part of the house furnishings for which he had paid. After all, he said, a bargain was a bargain. Then will you permit me to purchase it back from you? Miss Emmeline said. Again, he said, no. And while he was defending this position, 
Miss Emmeline bowed stiffly and walked out of the house. Well, Miss Emmeline was pretty upset. It had upset her to go into her own house again and see all the familiar things around her and realize that she had no legal right there. It upset her to feel more strongly than ever that Mr. Mall was not the sort of person she wanted to have using those things. And it upset her completely to realize that she had so carelessly let the most treasured of her heirlooms pass out of her hands. But not quite completely. That evening, she sat looking out of the window of her room at Mrs. Purdy's. She had selected that room because from it, she could see the lake and the old valiant house standing solid and firm among its gardens on the little bluff overlooking the water. She sat with Thomas, her cat, on her knees and looked out and she could not see much because the moon would not be up until later. But she could see the lights in the valiant house and when the last one winked out, she waited another half hour, and then she put her hat on and went quietly down the stairs. She met no one on the street. She went in through the side gate and across the lawn to the back door. It would be locked, but she knew that lock if you jiggled it gently, the latch would spring. She had never had it repaired because it was handy if she happened to lock herself out. With her shoes in her hand, she went quietly through the dining room and hall and up the stairs and past a door behind which some very vulgar snoring was going on and up the attic stairs. It was lighter in the attic for a lopsided moon had risen above the hills across the lake. The solid old floor did not creak once as she crept across it and carefully opened the back window under which stood the trunk. It was very small, about as large as a medium-sized suitcase it would be easy to carry down the stairs, but she felt it would be safer to lower it from the window by the clothesline, which was coiled nearby. But there was one more thing she needed. The attic had not been cleaned since last fall. If her footprints were not to be found in the dust on the floor, she must drag something over them before she left. From a far corner, she brought a broom, an old handmade affair with a bundle of twigs bound to the end of a short stick, which probably antedated the house. 
but when she lifted the trunk to slide it over the windowsill, ooh, something rattled inside. She thought it empty, though indeed she never remembered having opened it. It had always been just the trunk, so precious that it had never been shown to anyone outside the family, but always kept in that one place underneath the attic window. She had oiled it once a year to preserve the leather, but she had oiled only the outside. The hasp was stiff, but she got it open. The thing that had rattled was a flat metal box, and she was able to make out that it contained some sort of ointment with a bitter but not unpleasant medicated smell. She tucked it into her jacket pocket, but when she closed the trunk again, she scratched her wrist deeply on the hasp. The scratch bled a little, and without thinking much about it, she took out the box again and smeared some of the ointment on the place and rubbed it in. For she had been brought up in a school which always treated small cuts and abrasions with a liberal coating of any salve that happened to be handy. But as she was putting the box back into her pocket, it slipped out of her hand and clattered on the floorboards. Oh, she snatched it up quickly and then stood listening. She knew that Mr. Maul's servants must be occupying the rooms directly beneath her. For a minute, she thought, they hadn't heard anything. And then there were vague sounds downstairs and a voice called. Miss Emmeline knew she was trapped. She seized the broom with an instinctive impulse to defend the stairs, but before she had realized how foolish that was, oh, something else happened. The tingling she had noticed in her wrist when she had first applied the ointment suddenly shot up her arm and spread to her whole body. She felt curiously lightheaded and wondered if if she was going to faint. The broom on which she was trying to lean behaved in a most unaccountable manner, for it leaped in her hands and seemed to be pulling her toward the window. And then, as she grasped it more tightly, she felt her feet leave the floor. They scraped over the window sill, and she was moving rapidly through the air, twenty feet above the garden. But the broomstick was still firmly clasped in her hands, and she realized that she was flying swiftly eastward into the rising moon. Oh dear me, this is very odd, thought Miss Emmeline. And indeed, the experience was unusual and would have been very disturbing to her if she had had time to think about it. But of course, she didn't. What was most immediately puzzling was how she managed to keep from falling off. She was riding side saddle, which was in a way reassuring, but 
there was no sense of weight or of sitting on anything. The buoyancy was in herself, and the broomstick, as she presently discovered, was only for steering. Though, if left to itself, it guided her due east. Oh, just like old Captain, she thought, when I gave him his head and he made for home. Then a disquieting idea wedged itself into her thoughts. Where would home be for a broomstick? Miss Emmeline was no fool, and she realized that she had stumbled on the professional secrets of that ancestress who had, and quite properly, been hanged as a witch. The ointment was certainly that famous salve with which the witches anointed themselves before taking off for the Sabbath. There was the broomstick. Mm, was it headed for the Sabbath? Although it was a good old New England custom, Miss Emmeline did not feel quite up to the rather robust form of entertainment which she understood was there provided. She pulled the broomstick around and headed northward up the lake. She skimmed low over the dark water and then rose higher and circled back over the village. Oh, dear me, she thought. This is quite exhilarating. But it was late and the air was getting chilly and after all, she thought, this flying around is most enjoyable, but the important thing is the trunk, and I still haven't got it. Hmm. I must think out another plan. She flew up Main Street and circled the Presbyterian Church steeple three times. Then, assuring herself that no one was in sight, swooped down and alighted in Mrs. Purdy's side yard. With the broom under her arm, she let herself quietly in and went up to her room. It wasn't until she had finally got into bed oh, that she remembered. She had left her shoes in the attic. Well, Miss Emmeline spent all the next morning in the public library reading up about witches. As far as she could make out, they had been an extraordinarily ineffectual lot. Hmm. They had claimed to be able to dry up cows and raise storms and give children fits. But even when they confessed, it seemed difficult to prove that they got results. They also made little wax figures of their enemies and stuck pins in the parts of the body which they wished to afflict. Miss Emmeline was unable to find, in the few references available, any account of the procedure, and in any case could not see what use she could make of such accomplishments. For Mr. Mall had neither cows nor children, and if she raised a storm, well, he would just close the windows. And anyway, she thought, I don't want to harm him. I just want my trunk. Oh, and my shoes, she added. For indeed, the loss of a pair of shoes hmm, 
was a serious matter. Well, Miss Emmeline thought and thought, but she could not think of a plan. And she decided that, although being a witch was entertaining, it had little practical value. On her way home from the library, she met her old friend, Mrs. Courtney Bishop. Mrs. Bishop was brusque and autocratic, but not with Miss Emmeline, of whom she was very fond. They had gone to school together as girls, and their friendship had, rather amazingly, survived a widening divergence in fortune. For the bishops had gone up as fast as the valiants had gone down. Perhaps because, although Mrs. Bishop had often offered to help Miss Emmeline, the latter had always refused. Miss Emmeline learned from Mrs. Bishop that there had been a disturbance at Mr. Mall's <laughs> the previous night. There had been noises in the attic, and the shoes and the open window had been found, but no explanation seemed possible, as there had been no one there, and the window was twenty feet from the ground. Mr. Mall pooh-poohed the whole thing, but the servants were frightened, and as one might have expected, the cook asserted that she had seen a great black creature fly away from the window across the lake. Miss Emmeline did not smile, but her mouth twitched slightly, and Mrs. Bishop looked at her sharply and said, You know something about this, Emmeline. Miss Emmeline, who always told the exact truth, said, Yes, I do. She frowned, and after a moment's hesitation said, I think I'd better tell you about it. Well, you had better come to dinner tonight, said Mrs. Bishop. But if you're going to the girls' friendly meeting, we must get along, or we will be late. Oh, yes, the girls' friendly, said Miss Emmeline. I had forgotten. Forgotten the girls friendly, said Mrs. Bishop, raising her eyebrows. And Miss Emmeline said, yes, and I, I think I had better not go. Mrs. Bishop raised her eyebrows another notch, but all she said was, well, dinner at seven, and went on. During dinner, nothing was said about Mr. Mall. But afterward, when coffee had been cleared away and they were alone in the big living room, which looked out through huge windows eastward across the lake and north across the valiant garden, Miss Emmeline told just what had happened. As the story went on, Mrs. Bishop's eyes opened wider and wider, and then her mouth opened and she sat forward in her chair. But when Miss Emmeline came to the part about flying out of the window on the broom, she brought her hand down hard on the chair arm and said, Stop!
So, Miss Emmeline stopped. Where are you going? Mrs. Bishop demanded as Miss Emmeline got up. Oh, just to the hall to get something I brought with me, Miss Emmeline said, for I knew you would think I had lost my mind. And in a minute she came back with something wrapped up in a dark table cover and undid it and it was her broom. Oh, yes, well, we have one of those, said Mrs. Bishop. And I suppose you uh, flew about on it. Well, you can humor me if it amuses you, Letty, said Miss Emmeline. But please don't edge toward the door, for I assure you that I am quite harmless. And if my demonstration fails... I will call Dr. Blessing myself and ask him to come over. Now, this is the ointment, she said, holding it out. And Mrs. Bishop sniffed and said, Phew! So, Miss Emmeline rolled up the screen that covered the open window and rubbed some ointment on her wrist. She took her broom in both hands. Then, with a slow and quite dignified motion, she rose from the floor and sailed out the window. And Mrs. Bishop fainted, fainted away. After a few minutes, Mrs. Bishop came too. She moaned a little, but nobody answered. So she sat up and looked around, and then she hurried to the window. It was pretty dark, but a lot of the valiant windows were lit, and in the reflected light, she saw something big and black swoop past the corner of the porch. And then, in a minute, it came back just a few feet above the lawn, and she saw that it was Miss Emmeline who waved her handkerchief as she passed. Mrs. Bishop thought she would faint away again. And then she decided that a glass of lemonade would be better. She got it herself from the dining room. And while she was sipping it, Miss Emmeline flew in the window and leaned her broom in the corner and sat down again. <sighs> well, she said, now, do you believe me? No, said Mrs. Bishop. And I suppose it is some form of hypnotism. And I will ask you not to do it again. Oh, then suppose you try it yourself then, said Miss Emmeline. And she held out the ointment. And that's where we'll stop for today. And I ask you to please remember... We have a collection of fast asleep episodes ready for you right now. Each contains a masterpiece from a gifted author. Please take advantage of them. Good night.